Psalm 83 is a cry for help when surrounded by enemies. The psalm is written at a time in Judah's history when she was surrounded by enemies to the southwest, to the northeast, to the east. These enemies have allied themselves against them. And so the psalmist laments the grave situation they're facing. And he cries out to God to deliver them from their enemies. In much the same way, the church faces a similar dilemma today. The bride of Christ is hewn in by alliances of enemies on every side who seek to destroy her. Commenting on this psalm, Alexander McLaren wrote these words, The world is up in arms against God's people. And what weapon has Israel? What weapon has the church? Nothing but prayer. And so, like Judah, we need to cry out for help when surrounded by enemies. Our defense is in prayer to God. Now, there's 18 verses here. Verses 1 through 8, we'll see the appeal. And then in verses 9 through 18, we'll see the avenging. So, let's begin in verses 1 through 8 of the appeal. We're going to break the appeal into two parts. First of all, counsel in verses 1 through 4, and confederacy in verses 5 through 8. So as the psalmist appeals to God, let's hear what he has to say about the counsel. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people, and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now the opening appeal here is very emphatic. We can literally render the opening verse, O God, let there not be an activity to you. Do not be speechless. Do not be undisturbed, O God. And the double address of O God, the repetition of these verbs, makes the psalmist's point very clear. He is pleading, he is appealing for God's attention and action. And the reasons are given in verses 2 through 4. First of all, the enemy is active. They're making an uproar. They've exalted themselves. Literally, this idea is they're full of pride and rebellion. The, the, and, and the psalmist can hear the armies assembling with battle. He hears the babble of their voices. So the enemies are active too. These enemies make shrewd plans against Israel by consulting together. Now, Israel is referred to here as God's treasured ones. God's treasured ones. Literally, they're the apple of his eye. They belong to him. Third, the enemy's goal is the destruction of Israel. They want to cut off the people of God. They want to blot out their name in order that no one would remember them anymore. And so here is the demand for total victory. It is a holy war against Israel. And the final point clinches the, the appeal, the argument here. God, you need to arise to meet this threat to Israel's existence. Lord God, be true to your covenant. Now the church today faces a similar battle. Satan and his forces have rebelled against God. There is indeed a cosmic conspiracy to defeat God and his people. But like Israel's enemies, they're trying to plan the church's destruction. And so what do we do against these enemies? 
we must call upon God to act. Because as we'll see here in Psalm 83, he is our only hope. He is our only hope. Now, as part second part of this appeal, we have the confederacy in verses 5 through 8. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites of Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has also joined them. They have become a help to the children of Lot, Selah. Now the consultation in verse 3, the reason he's praying is much more clearly defined because he now outlines who these enemies are that are conspiring together, who are plotting together. They've conspired with one mind. Literally, they've put their minds together. They have formed a confederacy. Interesting there, it's the idea of covenant. So they've entered into a covenant against God and against his people. And it's interesting because literally they're coming against Israel but the psalmist says they're coming against God. And what we see here is an identification between Yahweh and his people. To touch God's people is to touch Yahweh. And this is exactly what Paul explains in Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. That as he was persecuting the church, he was ultimately persecuting Jesus. Now, the members of this war covenant are listed in verses 6 through 8. Ten nations are identified. First, there is Edom. That's Esau's descendants, bordering on Judah south. Next, there are the nomadic Ishmaelites, descendants of Abraham and Hagar. In Jude 8, 24, they're identified with the Midianites. Then there are the Hagarites, possibly also related to Abraham, dwelling on the east of the Jordan beyond Gilead. Then there is Gebel, south of the Dead Sea, and Edom. Ammon, one of the sons of Lot, and his ancestral relationships with his daughter, who was also associated with the other son, Moab, a state to the east of Jordan. Then there's the Amalekites, dwelling south of Judah, and Philistia, on Israel and uh, Judah's western border. Then there's Tyre, a Phoenician city on the north coast. And finally, there's the Assyrian empire who is backing the sons, the children of Lot, namely Moab and Ammon. Now, what's very interesting here, outside of the Philistines and the Assyrians uh, and the Phoenicians, seven of these people groups, seven of these enemies, are basically relations of Israel. They're cousins. But every one of them goes back to a situation. The Ishmaelites, Abraham takes Hagar to try to help God conceive a descendant, which he never should have done. Then there's Lot, having an incestuous relationship with his daughters after having gone to Sodom and Gomorrah, which he never should have done. Then there's Esau, who was the firstborn, but who gave up his birthright, sold it to his brother, and then went and married Hittite women. So here are God's people, surrounded by nations, cities, tribes, who have joined in a covenant to destroy them. The battle has to be fought on several fronts. 
And because this battle is so great, this crisis is so huge, it evokes the call for God to act. You know, likewise, the church is facing a battle engaging the forces of Satan and the kingdoms of this world who do his bidding. And the enemy is employing everything he can to defeat us. We're surrounded by a hostile world that is constantly trying to force their false goals, false values, and false assumptions upon us. And we have to fight on many fronts. Not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. A battle for the mind, a battle for the will, a battle for the heart. There is also a battle for our unity and our purity. And now we turn to verses 9 through 18. And we see the psalmist appeal is now God's avenging. Verses 9 through 18. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torn of Gishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Samuna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains on fires. So pursue them with your tempest, terrify them with your storm, fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O oh Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Now the psalmist here reminds God of his past victories and asks him to act again as he has before. Deal with our enemies as you dealt with Midian. Now this is a reference back to Judges, back to Gideon, and the way in which he used 300 men to frighten the Midianites into self-destruction in Judges 7. Staying in the book of Judges, there's General Sisera and his king, Javan, Canaanite leaders who were defeated by the prophetess Deborah and Barak at the brook Kishon. That's Judges chapter 4. Then there was the area of Endor, uh, where corpses littered the earth as dung, which was a sign of unbridled judgment. And so the psalmist asked God, do the same to this confederacy. Make their enemies, make their leaders of these enemies, like the two Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, who were killed by the men of Ephraim in Judges chapter 7. Let them be like their prince, that their princes be like the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, who were killed in Judges 8 by Gideon. These enemy leaders who will be destroyed exercise blatant self-will because they want the pastors of God. It's no wonder God should act again as he did in the time of Judges. Now, in verse, starting in verse 13, the psalmist turns from history to nature. Now, he employs storm images and calls upon God to ask. And notice how, how intimate and intensely personal. Oh my God, may my enemies become like whirling dust, like a dust storm. Let them be blown away as nothing. Let them be like chaff, which is separated by the wheat and carried off by the wind. God, pursue these enemies as a fire that burns down the forest, like a flame setting a mountain on fire, most likely the idea of a volcanic eruption. And as they experience his tempest, his storm, let them know the fire of his wrath. 
I honestly believe the psalmist was fully expecting God's intervention to come through nature, to come through natural causes. Now, what is the consequence when God intervenes? Well, we see that Israel's enemies are broken. Their face is filled with shame or disgrace. Just as Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, When the day of the Lord of hosts comes, he shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up. It shall be brought low. And then they're going to turn to God. They're going to seek his name. They're going to seek his presence. Because judgment will bring for some redemption. Some of the enemies, when they face God's judgment, will admit that God is the living God. Most, however, will fall. And so the psalmist asks that these enemies be ashamed or confounded. Let them be dismayed. Let them be troubled. Let them be put to shame. Let them perish. Let them be destroyed. Let them vanish away forever. And their destruction, the destruction of this confederacy, will prove that Yahweh is God. Psalm 83 concludes that they may know, that they may by experiencing what God has done, that they might know you, O Lord, whose name alone is Yahweh, and that you are the Most High over all the earth. It's God's work. It's his supernatural intervention that proves his name is true. As I said, we're locked in a spiritual battle against the enemies of this world, against Satan. How are we ever going to be victorious? How are we going to triumph? Are we just going to die? Are we just going to be destroyed? No. And the fact of the matter is, we cannot triumph over them on our own. Jesus can, and Jesus has. And so we need to call upon him to go into battle for us. Like the psalmist of old, let's take heart in those past victories. Let's look at the great revivals of the past and pray, Lord, do it again. We can also look at all the sin and evil in this world. And let's pray as the prayer is made in verse 13. Make them like whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord God, we come before you, the Mighty One. And we come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Mighty One. You are the one who has dealt blows to the enemy in the past. You are the one who has been victorious over the enemies in the past. You have routed the enemy. You have defeated the enemy. And Lord, you are to get all the praise and the glory. And because of that reason, we come before you, Lord, and we cast ourselves and ask for your help. Lord, we are surrounded by enemies. Satanic enemies. Enemies from this world the philosophies of this world, the sins of this world. We're hewn in on every side and we're being told that we have to accept it. We're being told that we have to go along with it. We're being told that we have to compromise. And yet, Lord, that is not your way. And so I pray, Lord, that while we are unable to defeat this enemy, we know that you are and we cry out for your help. We pray, Father God, that you would intercede on our behalf as you have done in the past. I pray, Lord, that you would take these enemies and, Father, if possible, redeem them. But if not, destroy them. Father, we confess before you that there are times that we have sinned. There are times, Lord, that we have tried to fight this battle on our own. There are times that, Lord, perhaps we've even compromised with these ones. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us. 
We pray that, Lord God, you would make us holy and pure. And that, Father God, you would keep us from the evil one in this evil day. Lord God, we know the victory will come. And so, therefore, we give you the praise, we give you the glory. And to these things we say truly, truly, amen.